Morning Jubilee. Um, it's great to be speaking this morning and, and joining together with you. I'm really pleased to be continuing our journey this morning in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel. And my title is Reactions to Jesus. This is the third talk in our Year of the Lord's Favour series. And let's briefly recap where we've got so far. So in the first talk, Simon opened by looking at Jesus's kingdom manifesto. We heard how Jesus quoted to his hometown synagogue the part of Isaiah 61, which talks of proclaiming good news to the poor, bringing sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners and announcing the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus declared that he is the fulfilment of all of those promises, but the people of Nazareth weren't happy. In fact, they were very angry because Jesus didn't go on to quote the next part of the passage, which speaks about judgment against the pagan nations. And the reason this made them angry was at this time, the Jewish people were living under the rule of Rome, which is a really important piece of backdrop for everything we're looking at in this series. But then even worse, Jesus goes on to declare that he isn't going to perform any miracles for his hometown crowd and that his message of the kingdom was for the outsiders rather than for the in-crowd. After this highly unusual manifesto launch, I mean, can you imagine a contemporary politician going to a rally of their own supporters and then telling them they've got everything wrong and they're going to find other voters instead? Luke goes on to detail a series of wonderful healings that Jesus does, which Rob unpacked for us last week. We see that Jesus has authority over illness, over paralysis, even over the demonic. And he practices what he preaches about his kingdom, that it is a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of restoration, a kingdom of liberation and a kingdom of grace. But not everyone welcomes this kingdom. Last week, we got a hint of that as the Pharisees questioned Jesus's authority to speak forgiveness over sins. And this opposition comes sharply into focus in our passage this week. How do we react to seeing the year of the Lord's favour in action? What are the different responses we can expect to see people have to Jesus? Rob said last week that knowing the favour of the Lord is all about receiving it. So our reaction to Jesus's inauguration of his kingdom is critical. Why don't we pray? Father, we pray you would open your word up to us this morning and help us to have amazed, wonderful reactions to your son, the King Jesus. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, please um, pick it up now. Um, I'm going to read from Luke chapter five, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on, eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. 
In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants a new, for he says the old is better. So Luke begins this section with the words after this. Um, And I just want to pause there to to bring out something which I hope will set us in good stead for this whole series. And that is when we are engaging with the Gospels, we're not just engaging with dry information. We're engaging with a biography. We're engaging with a biography written for a purpose. Um, And we're not going to get the drama. We're not going to get these amazed reactions by Jesus if we only approach the Bible as being a book of information. It's not. So let's let's really engage with the whole dynamic of what Luke wants to show us here. It's not just information to be noted. It's not just philosophy to be understood. But this is the most important and the most exciting story ever told. Okay, so let's get into what we've just read about. Here we see two encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, where the Pharisees challenge Jesus's behaviour And Jesus offers a series of pictures and parables in response to their challenge. And Jesus's behaviour certainly was shocking by the standards of religious practice at that time, and of which the Pharisees were the guardians. Eating with tax collectors, the great enemies of the Jewish nations, calling them to be his disciples even. Eating and drinking with joy rather than fasting, which was a central expectation of the serious teachers and students of religion at the time. And then jumping ahead into chapter six, daring to redefine what was acceptable on the Sabbath, the focal point of the meticulous practices that characterised the teaching and the way of life of the Pharisees and their followers. So what was going on here? Why was Jesus continuing to drum up such public enmity so early in his kingdom campaign? Could he not have blended in with the teaching and behaviours of the influential Pharisees to win them around and then gradually start introducing some of his own kingdom teaching? Well, let's turn to those pictures that Jesus uses to see why incremental reform from the inside was not how Jesus was going to fulfil his Isaiah 61 calling. So these pictures answer three different questions which we'll go through. Firstly, who will the anointed king take his good news to? Secondly, how will people respond to the king himself? And thirdly, why is there resistance? Why is there resistance to this bringing in of the year of the Lord's favour? So question number one, who will the king take the good news to? Well, in verses 31 to 32, we see Jesus picture himself as a doctor, coming for the sick. This is building on a theme we've looked at in some of the earlier talks about who is Jesus's ministry and kingdom for. And we see again here that his kingdom is for the poor, the outsider, the sinner and the excluded, rather than the religious elite and the socially respectable. There's just one extra point I want to make on this, and that when Jesus does this, he's not reaching out from some grand palace of benevolence and showering his blessings down on the dregs of society, though he actually left his throne in heaven to come and walk, talk, 
eat and heal among the desperate and weary people of Israel. And as he brought his kingdom to them, they actually were no longer outsiders because Jesus had, in the words of John Swinton, redefined the margins. Those who were previously out were now in because Jesus had gone to them. Jesus doesn't just visit outsiders and make them feel a bit better about themselves. He appoints them to a position in his kingdom. They are insiders now. They are outsiders no longer. So what's your reaction to all of this, my friends? If you're feeling at all like an outsider today, whether because of your family background, your level of income, your race, your mental health, feeling like you're different from the other children at school, a particular pattern of sin, or anything else that makes you feel like that, then be encouraged. Jesus has appointed you to a position of honour in his kingdom. You are an outsider no longer. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning who's more aware of your social privileges, then be thankful that Jesus has called you despite your position and offer your advantages wholeheartedly and without pride as a blessing to Jesus, his kingdom and all who are in it. Paul famously declares in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And to put that into our British context, there is no class system in the kingdom. There are no outsiders. And Jesus demonstrates this powerfully by who he chooses to eat with. So that's question one. Who will the anointed king take the good news to? Question two, how should we react to the king himself? In verse 34, Jesus talks about being the bridegroom in response to criticism from the Pharisees over the lack of fasting in the routines of his disciples. And Jesus really ups the ante here by bringing in the imagery of a wedding. For the wedding was the ultimate celebration of joy and life in first century Judaism. And not only by this implication was Jesus saying that I am the wedding feast, I bring the culture of the wedding, but actually you Pharisees, you represent a funeral, you represent death by your imposed fasting and the culture you bring to these people. And again, this illusion wouldn't have been subtle to his original hearers. The Pharisees would have heard loud and clear Jesus' declaration that my way is the way of life, in contrast to the ways of death that you have perverted the Jewish hope with. Why should his disciples fast? The kingdom of everlasting joy, feasting and prosperity was being established right in front of their eyes by Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom. This was not the time for mourning. Again, I want to pause here and ask, with that image of the bridegroom in mind, how do you react to Jesus being king? I'm so encouraged to see so much bridegroom-inspired joy amongst our worship and our words, even during this time where we're having to worship apart from each other. Yet I'm also aware that it's unlikely we're all feeling that same spirit all of the time. So when we're not feeling established in that wedding feast and that heavenly joy, then returning to the truth of Jesus really being our king, really being our Lord, really being our heavenly bridegroom is where we need to turn. And this is the central message of the good news in scripture. Jesus is indeed the king. And in his kind kingship, he brings us an array of incredible blessings. 
But if we only love him for the blessings and not for who he is, then our love is likely to become transactional, flat and even legalistic, even with the best theologies of salvation by grace that we might hold. So my encouragement, Jubilee, is let's go to the wedding banquet. Let's go and spend time with the groom and not just ask for the feast to be wrapped up in a takeaway box for us. So that's question two. How do we respond to the king himself? Let's move on to question three, which is, why is there resistance to this kingdom? To answer this question, Jesus introduces two new pictures that contrast the old and the new. Firstly, about trying to put new cloth onto an old garment and then trying to pour old wine into new wineskins. And I think the reason Jesus chooses these two pictures is they highlight the root of the division that Jesus causes. When people react in one way or another to Jesus, there's something going on at the core in the root. And this is what Jesus is trying to tease out with these pictures. And again, these pictures would have been really easily understood by Jesus's audience as he teaches quite plainly that the Pharisees hope for vindication for Israel through political liberation and ritualistic religion is just the wrong vehicle for expecting God's kingdom to come. That's the old way, the old wine, the old cloth, and I'm bringing the new. How could this new, unexpected breaking in of God's kingdom possibly fit into the old ways, which have failed for so long to usher in the tangible presence of God and his kingdom upon the earth? Yet the Pharisees resist because they cannot let go of the old and welcome the new. Now, just to clarify something on the picture of the new and old wine that might confuse especially those keen wine drinkers amongst us. So today we tend to think of older vintage wines as being superior in quality. But back in first century Israel, the vaulted cellars of Bordeaux weren't exactly high on the cultural radar. No, it was the new wine which was a delicacy. But it was only a delicacy for those who could handle it. For new wine was kind of lively with fermentation and complex flavours, uh, which meant that those with um, delicate constitutions, as the old commentaries so wonderfully put it, they tended to drink the bland but harmless old wine and wouldn't consider touching the new wine. Wow. And so we hear the message even more clearly, Pharisees. You are so wedded to the pale shadows of your old way that you can't even conceive of the joy and the reality of the radical new way that I am now bringing to the world. So what's the challenge to us of this new cloth, of this new wine? Um, I've heard this passage be used in, in quite a lazy way and quite frankly a wrong way, which is to dismiss anything we see in other churches that doesn't match up to what we think worship should look like. Please don't use these verses to cultivate spiritual pride or to declare arrogantly over other believers. Rather, I think the challenge is we need to let the Holy Spirit shine his light onto any areas of our own spiritual life that we base on our own effort, on our own assumptions and on our own practices, rather than on the effort, assumptions and practices of Jesus. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to shine his light on any areas where we place our ultimate hope in established social systems and cultural norms, like the Pharisees did, rather than in the dynamic reality of Jesus and his kingdom. So to summarise the question of why the Pharisees opposed Jesus, it was just because they just couldn't hear his message amongst their own blind certainties. They drank the old wine and they just could not bring themselves to drink the new. 
So having answered these three questions, let's pause again here and reflect on the challenge they bring us. Where are you with welcoming Jesus and his kingdom? How do you react to Jesus? Are you happy to follow in the footsteps of the king and go to the outsiders of society? Or is respectability more important to you? Are you feasting on joy on the king's banquet? Or are, only, are, are, you, are you only interested in a transactional arrangement with heaven? Will you drink the exciting new wine of the upside down kingdom? Or do you prefer the bland, comfortable certainties of a social system? I'm not enjoying putting these questions out there as they are seriously challenging me even as I speak them. But I do believe they are the question God wants to raise with us as we go forward in our journey of becoming who we truly are as Jubilee Church. So if you can pick up your Bibles again, let's read on in chapter six. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is it lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So in these further clashes, we see the Pharisees continue their crescendo of opposition to Jesus, which started with grumbling in the first incident and then goes on to plotting against Jesus in what we've just read there. Such a quick escalation. Indeed, in Mark's account of this same passage, he uses much stronger language, stating that the Pharisees discussed how they might kill him. And all of the incidents we've looked at this morning provide the backdrop for the drama of Jesus's life. His unserving claim to be fulfilling all the prophetic hopes of Israel, set against the Pharisees' bitter rejection of such claims, in preference for their own failed guardianship of the Jewish calling. It was a rejection so bitter that it eventually led to Jesus's crucifixion, where the sign above his cross so dramatically and accurately declared, this is the king of the Jews. So again, what does all of this mean for us? Well, the very obvious challenge of these verses is, are we all in for the opposition and the suffering we will face as followers of Jesus? We see here that deadly opposition is generated even by the kind and the healing works that Jesus is doing. We cannot expect an easy ride as we seek to bring the year of the Lord's favour to a hurting world. Scripture is clear in many places that we will face opposition. 
and that such opposition on earth is a manifestation of the spiritual war that the devil and the powers of evil wage against the Lord. Yet scripture is also clear that in some mysterious and wonderful way, the kingdom itself actually comes through the very suffering we face. Demonstrated most dramatically as we consider the death of Jesus and all of that achieved and all that that won. So my encouragement is hold on for there is indeed a great prize. Knowing the year of the Lord's favour in action, being appointed into the kingdom of God, being rewarded at the renewing of all things and the joyful knowledge of being a precious child of the king. The cost is worth it. Accepting the cost of discipleship is clearly another uncomfortable challenge. But I've come to realise that if we see Jesus in action in the Gospels and we have comfortable reactions, we're probably not seeing things right. Luke hasn't written us a cosy story to chivy us along. No, he's written us an astonishing tale of a dynamic, dangerous and divisive figure to shock us into a response. The inauguration of God's kingdom on earth, as in heaven, through Jesus, is truly the turning point of history, a revolution surpassing any other. And Luke wants us to react with the stunned awe, obedience and joy that such extraordinary realities demand. And he wants us to be clear that this is indeed a battle that we are stepping into if we give our yes to the call of Jesus. As right at the start of our passage, we saw Levi say yes to Jesus as he was called. So to sum up my message this morning, I would say Jubilee, let's be amazed by Jesus all over again.